On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind, listen to my conversation with Don McKenzie, Managing Director of Adesis. In this episode, you'll learn how to effectively manage accelerating change in your business, the four key working styles that every business needs to harness, and how to build mutual trust and respect. My name is Aidan Vopolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Don, thanks so much for coming on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Don, you're the Managing Director of Adesis here in Australia. You've previously listed an Australian company on the ASX, which managed billions of dollars of insurance claims and expanded the business internationally across Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, and Great Britain, reaching a peak of over 600 staff whilst becoming the youngest managing director of an ASX company at that time. Tell me, what was life like growing up for you, and where did your entrepreneurial journey begin? Well, thank you for the intro. That was a blast from the past. That was a, uh, an interesting previous life. Look, I got a lucky break when I was young. My father, while I was at university at UQ, obviously saw something in me and backed me into a little uh, home improvements business that did guttering and roofing and all sorts of things like that. So I, I walked around in board shorts and skate shoes as a 18 and 19 year old learning the ropes of business and suppliers and supply chains and things that would go wrong and customers and pricing and all that jazz and, and just had a real passion, not so much for the product in hindsight, but just for business. And so really got stuck into that and, and built that up. Ended up selling that off and then started another uh, business. Still had a bit of a sort of getting deeper into the management of insurance claims. But I built some software to better manage it because at that time, everything... I still remember after one hailstorm having to say to someone, look, I'm sorry, could you send the quote request through a little bit later? My fax machine is currently busy. And, and you know, in the early 2000s, everything was fax. And I remember the... The first email I got with a job request, I was almost incensed that they would email us because how did they even know I check my email every day? It's uh, not the done thing. And I just built that up and did some things. And uh, some things worked out really well, did some things that I'm uh, really proud of, and, and some things did not work out well. And it was the lessons of both sides that were really quite interesting. And, and you know, learning that success too early doesn't actually teach you much. Success doesn't actually teach you what not to do and, and teach you sort of things for the future. And some of the difficult times came because in hindsight, <laughs> I didn't, didn't know as much as I would have thought I would. But anyway, that's how it all started. You mentioned um, sort of some big lessons from more of the failures as opposed to the successes. Are there any big lessons that sort of stand out for you back then that you've carried through <laughs> your sort of career, I guess, as you've gone along? Yeah. One of the big lessons is that actually there's structure, your structure will achieve your vision and your mission, right? In hindsight, there's lots of good strategies and lots of good visions and the people I work with now and companies that I invest in, there's no shortage of energy and focus that goes into strategy and vision and mission and all that kind of jazz. But it's actually the structure that will achieve it. So as an example, a basic one, you know, a structural issue is, say, time orientation, meaning there's short-term time orientation and there's long-term time orientation. If your structure is short-term orientated and needs to be, so as an example, 
I come across a lot of people that are entrepreneurial. They want to build a business. They want to get a business off the ground. But you know what? They've got to put food on the table in the short term for their family. They've got to pay for school fees or they've got to do all these shorter term things. And ultimately, the problem then becomes is they're not structured to actually achieve that vision and mission because to build a business, sometimes you've got to go for years with with very little income and you've got to bootstrap it and you've got to do those things. And the problem is they then become more and more frustrated because they're not achieving that vision and that mission. In hindsight, from a very early age, a lot of the things that I was trying to do didn't have a, a hope in hell of actually seeing the light of day. Not because they weren't good ideas or that I didn't have the passion or the energy or any of that. We didn't have the, the structure place to um, do it and sort of really getting to the bottom of the ingredients. The structure for us now with what we do with some with clients is it's, it's about the time orientation, it's the roles and responsibilities, it's your reward systems, it's your information flow. All of these things flow into what we would define as the structure. And if you don't have the structure to what you want to achieve, you've got a choice to make. Either you keep going after that vision, that mission, so to speak, and ignore the structure, or you've got to do a little bit of a dance. Maybe can I change my structure a little bit to get a little bit of the mission and vision that I want? And then once I've done that, do a little bit of a, a dance. But in hindsight, that was one of the, the big learnings. Even today, so often we just find that there's a structural element. And the silly example that I use, let's say that, I wake up one day and decide I want to be a male supermodel. Now, the good thing with podcasts is you can't actually have a video. So I can assure people that I am not structured to be a male supermodel. I don't have the looks, the, the physique, the, any of those bits and pieces, right? I don't have the structure to be a male supermodel. So I've got a couple of choices. Either I can change my structure. Maybe I can go and lose 20 kilos leg extensions, facelift, go to the gym, all of that, and become closer to what today's definition is of a male supermodel. Or guess what? I'm going to have to update my mission and vision to actually achieve what I can based on my structure. So there needs to be a bit of a damp mission structure, mission structure. Do I have the structure? Yes. Okay, great. No. Okay. Well, can I change my structure or is it something out of my control? Doing a bit of a dance and, and People did that more and were able to adjust to the structural reality of their reality today. They would be able to make incremental steps towards the big vision, but often they're just trying to shoot too far without a structure to support it. So that was a, a big one that, that I still carry through today. So for business, and, and the real realization of that came once I found with what I do today was Dr. Ishak Adesis talking about some of these things. And so there was a an underlying feeling that that existed, but until I sort of came across some of his work, um, didn't have a language for it. I guess it's so important sometimes to have that language to wrap behind or wrap around concepts that you sort of intuit to actually have language to describe what you're sort of feeling or, you know, that sixth sense in a way, the intuition that you've developed yeah. over time to, to be able to give, you know, that more structure. For business owners that are yeah. sort of struggling to know when to restructure or, or readjust, you know, the mission and the vision, would you have any advice as to know, you know, at what point do you do you restructure where you're at versus yeah. re sort of aligning yourself to where the future is? A really good question. So I guess dovetailing that question and then also the previous one of what what did I learn? Well, the question of vision and mission and even structure in, in hindsight is actually a little bit further down from the, the other realization is that 
even with a good vision and mission, even with a good structure of all of those things, that, and again, it comes from the body of work of Dr. Adesis, but energy is fixed at any point in time, right? 100% is 100%. There's no 26 hours in a day, there's 24 hours in a day. But energy is also predictably allocated. It always goes to, in inverted commas, the negative. So as an example, if I wanted to drag a log across the ground, if you can imagine there's a log with a rope and I'm trying to pull it across the ground, that log's only going to move if there's enough energy to get over friction and inertia. If there isn't, that log's not going to move. If there is, well, only, you know, got to get over that threshold level of friction and inertia for it to move. And it's the speed at which it can move is then a function of how much energy is left over. And in hindsight, it's the same for organizations, families, relationships, individuals. If you live in a fixed energy world, the energy is first going to go into that negative that we call disintegration, right? Energy first feeds disintegration. That disintegration, as an example, between the ears, like in our minds, could be fear, can I, can't I, should I, shouldn't I, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that. If you can imagine when your eyes are pointed inwards, so to speak, and your, your mind is full of all of these things, well, that's first gets allocated energy and only what that is only that that is left over can go outside and achieve great things and in organizations you know the the right time to restructure and vision and mission all that kind of jazz well we, we need to have it on a bedrock of all of our energy being available to do so and so too often organizations and, and I certainly experience this there's a lot of energy being lost to disintegration fighting, backstabbing, lack of alignment, conflict, destructive conflict, all of that. But they're sort of taught, it's almost like, oh, well, we're having all these business problems, so let's go and redo our strategy and redo our structure. Well, no, you actually have to deal with that disintegration. You actually have to get that energy first aligned and pointing in the right direction because if you don't have 100% of your energy available, let's say 50 or 60% of it is going to that internal disintegration, well, by definition, only 40 to 50% is going to be available to go out and, you know, meet client needs and really achieve everything that you're able to achieve. And so the right time to sort of restructure comes on the back of having a very clear vision and mission and, and all that normal stuff. But that has to be built on a bedrock of what we would describe as mutual trust and respect. Cultures of high mutual trust and respect have low disintegration. And by doing that, you're sort of going to be redoing your vision and your mission and, and your, your structure in an environment that actually has the capability to do that. And so if you're in an organization or you've got a team or you're part of a larger organization and there's a lot of energy getting lost, that disintegration and that lack of alignment and all that kind of jazz, deal with that first, then the right sequence is in that culture we would describe as high mutual trust and respect, then it's going to become far easier to set vision and mission and direction, all of that. And it's going to be far easier in an environment of high mutual trust to change structure because people don't like change at the best of times. Then you start screwing around with roles and responsibilities and authorities and, and reward systems and all of that kind of stuff. It becomes really difficult. And so by having that culture first of mutual trust and respect where there's low disintegration, that's then the time to go off and do those other things. And so when clients come and talk to, to us and we put forward some stuff and they're suffering certain challenges and they say, we need to restructure or we need a new strategy or we need this or that, like, okay, maybe, maybe yeah, we'll get to that. To begin with, however, 
you need to be the healthiest that you can be. If you're about to climb a mountain, which change is a bit like climbing a mountain, if you're sort of hunched over in a, with a broken leg and needing a walking stick, well, that's not very healthy. So we need to first get you healthy, get high mutual trust and respect, get all that energy pointing in the right direction, and then let's go and climb that mountain. What are some key characteristics of, a, of an organization that has high mutual trust and respect? Great question. Well, you can tell by body language early on. So if you go into an organization that has high mutual trust and respect, you can tell because you know they respect each other when even if they have a difference of opinion, they want to learn from that disagreement. That's what we define as high respect is you have the right to think differently to me, but I want to learn from the disagreement. And that last bit of it can be really challenging when somebody's coming at you with a very different thing. So they, in a high respect environment, there can be differences of opinions and there can be constructive conflicts, but people maintain eye contact. People will talk to each other. People are still happy to meet. People are still happy to talk. But in an environment of low respect, it's the opposite. They turn their backs on each other. I don't want to hear about that. I can't stand working with that person anymore. That person, blah, blah, blah. And so from a respect, do they face do they listen and do they go towards that difference or that disagreement? Or do they turn their backs on each other and we've got all these silos? Then from trust, it's the opposite. In an environment where there is high trust, they turn their backs on each other during implementation. I don't need to watch you anymore. I don't need to watch out for my back. I trust and we define trust as we have a common interest that allows us to forego today knowing that we'll be made up for tomorrow. And so when you do have true trust, common interest and an acceptance from time to time, I need to forego in the common good, you'll see organizations have people that just turn their backs on each other during implementation. They're available to assist if required, but they're not going to sit there and micromanage and watch and say, I've got to watch that person because if I'm not careful, they're going to screw me over. No, no, they let implementation. When they, there is low trust, then they're watching. They're watching the whole time. I need to keep an eye on you. I need to watch that person. I, I've got to do it. So trust and respect, just from that very simple in an organization, do they face each other during disagreement? And do they turn away from each other during implementation so all the energy goes out to the customer? Or is it the opposite? Do they have a lack of respect so they turn their backs on each other during discussions and disagreements and all of that? And during implementation, do they sit there watching every little thing? So that's, that's a fairly simple Way A more complex way is that ultimately mutual trust and respect is required to be able to manage what we call the change loop. Why do we need to manage it all? Why can't we just build a business and retire off to Morton Island or something? Well, the reason why we need to keep managing is that there keeps being change. Change in technology, change in consumer demands. This coronavirus is a hell of a change for a lot of businesses. A lot of change in revenues, cost structures, all sorts of stuff. And what happens is those change create problems. And the flip side of those are opportunities that we need to manage. And the problem with managing, it's a loop. Because when I manage, I create more change. And so the most successful organizations, at the core of them, they might have a good products and good people and a bit of access to capital. But at the core, they were very good or are very good at managing the change loop. They identify and address problems and opportunities caused by change day in, day out. Show me a company that's in trouble or not performing well or has a whole lot of challenges, and at the core of it, they're not managing that change loop. They're not reacting to the problems and opportunities caused by change. They're not managing. And really, managing is just deciding what to do 
and then implementing that decision, right? Decide, implement. But if it was that easy, everybody would do it. And, and what we find is things get in the way of that loop and we describe them as conflicts and they can be conflicts of definition. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting and you had to talk about something complex and after two hours you realize Jim was using a sentence to mean one thing and Janet was using the same sentence but meant a different thing and we spent two bloody hours arguing over something and we haven't moved forward, right? Or conflicts of interest. You know, if, if we need to make a decision to make a change and implement something and it's not in somebody's interest, they're probably going to fight back on it. So if we don't have that conflict of interest harness, it's going to slow down our ability to deal with the change loop. Styles. Styles is a big one. There are high-performing, high pro- what we call high-producing styles. They love to just be head down, bum up, get stuff done. But then there's the more administrative-minded styles. They need data. They, they need research. We, we don't want to make a rash decision. And so suddenly two people can be in a big conflict. These conflicts build up. But they stop us managing, right? They stop us managing those problems and opportunities. And so getting to the core of it, if you have high mutual trust and respect, you're going to have those conflicts, but those conflicts will be constructive. And because they're constructive, it means you can traverse that change loop. And the world that we live in right now, the problem is change is accelerating. You can have been managing fine as a business for decades, As long as your rate of management is the same as the rate of change causing problems and opportunities that you manage. If if, if you've got alignment there, no problem. But as soon as that change loop starts to accelerate, if your ability to respond and manage doesn't accelerate, what happens is opportunities go unaddressed, which becomes problems, and problems unaddressed become crises, and crises kill companies. And so with corona at the moment, that is going to be a huge amount of change. And what organizations have to do in order to react to it is that they have to speed up their ability to react to all the problems and opportunities, which means they have to be able to make faster decisions that they can implement faster on time and on budget and hold people accountable. But often we concentrate on the thing rather than the process to create the thing. We often will will fixate on the outcome rather than the process that created the outcome. And in that change loop, there's a managerial process. There's how are we identifying as a team? How are we aligning? How are we deciding? How are we implementing? That managerial process is going to dictate your outcomes and your performance. But often we end up concentrating just on the outcome where we should be going back and concentrating on the process that created the outcome. And so during times of rapid change, well, let's have a look. Are we handling this change loop? Yes or no? If we're not, actually, is there a lack of trust and respect somewhere that is causing some destructive conflict? Let's get to the bottom of that first, fix the managerial process that is allowing that trust and respect to be attacked. Then with that bedrock, that asset, think of it like a muscle, with this muscle of mutual trust and respect, let's go and lift the big weights that we need to, and those big weights are problems. You said that the uh, the change is constantly accelerating. Is that something that you that's going to occur continually over time? That rate of change will always get faster and faster. And if, if so, is there a way, I guess, as um, as business owners or individuals, that they can be ready for that ongoing accelerating change? Absolutely. Let's unpack a bit. If you subscribe to the idea that change is accelerating, and I think it's pretty clear that it is, why is it? Well, we think it sort of comes from this concept of interdependency. A hundred years ago, 
people had a farm, they grew their food, they made their own clothes. There's no technology or that kind of stuff. The paper probably came once a week, whatever it was. There wasn't a lot of interdependency. You, you fended for yourself a little bit more. As technology comes along, what is it actually creating? It's creating interdependence. I mean, even now, I'll find myself a little bit lazy and I'll just use Uber Eats. Who am I depending on? Uber, the driver, the restaurant, the developer of the apps, my internet connection. Holy moly, look at all of that interdependency. Now, if one of those things breaks down, oh, we got a problem. And so if you think of your life and all the different interdependency and have a look at this corona reaction, I don't know what it is about Australians with this fascination of toilet paper, but we we are so interdependent and we fear, even if it's subconscious, we fear not being able to get access to those those different things. And so the more interdependent we get, which is being driven by technology and all those things, the faster the rate of change and the faster the potential for disintegration. And with things like corona, they are like this massive change bomb that suddenly little things like social conventions have to change. You know, shaking hands suddenly is now you're a weirdo if you want to shake some hands and it's probably going to get even even worse. Well, that's going to create Things. A lot of companies are having trouble with, with revenues. I was watching a thing tonight. People don't want to go and eat at Little Italy or, or Chinatown. As we get more interdependent and we get more reliant on these things, change. Now, the problem is you can't really slow down the pace of change. It is what it is. There is one way to have no change. But the only way to have no change is when you are dead, right? So change is actually a part of life. Change is a sign of life. And so if you're experiencing an environment where you feel change is getting less and less and less, well, that's a big problem. That's the slow slide down into unfortunate death. And so it's not that we want to be concerned about change or the rate of change. We just need to ensure that we have a methodology or a system or whatever you, whatever word works for you that can help you react to an accelerating change environment. Last year, your managerial processes, I'm sure will be fine. With corona, if you find that you're falling behind and suddenly more and more problems keep popping up and you're not keeping on top of, that's a sign that the system behind the scenes is no longer fit for purpose. And so managing change and managing accelerating change all comes down to having the right managerial processes, the right approach, the right structures to be able to do that. And in the interdependent world, it becomes more complex because to make decisions and implement it, the more interdependent we are, the more people we rely on, the more people we have to involve in those decisions and implementation. The problem is inviting lots of people to get involved in these things is, is ordinarily painful. So you actually have to have processes that turn a painful experience into something quite, uh, quite exciting. And so for the listeners listening, if you feel that the change is accelerating, but that your problems are accelerating as well, that is a sign that there's a disintegration between how you're reacting to that change. Problems are always going to come as opportunities because they come from change. And as long as we have change, we're going to have problems. The goal is, however, to constantly be having less and less long-term problems. So here's a little thought experiment we often do with with people that are interested in some of these ideas. We say, right, take out a pen and paper, write down, the problems and opportunities that you've had, we, we call them potential improvement points. We combine them. Just write down the potential improvement points for your business. And often it's things like our onboarding process is not efficient, the sales process isn't being followed, 
we don't have clear roles and responsibilities, authority hasn't been cascaded, the website's out of date, the marketing material isn't clear, don't have succession planning process, the recruitment process. Yeah, you just keep going through all of these different things. And most business owners or CEOs or even managers within business, I can get at least 40 to 50, if not sometimes 100 of these potential improvements. Okay, oh, no problem. Write them down. What percentage of these did you have, say, six months ago? And invariably, it's like 100%, maybe 95. What about 12 months ago? It's like 80%. Two years ago, 60%. How many of these little potential improvement points can you just go and solve by yourself? And what we invariably find is that it's none of them. People aren't lazy. If they could solve it, they would have solved it. How many of these actually need the cooperation of a number of people in the organization? to solve them. And when you go through the list, generally find 100%. So actually, what it's telling us is somewhere we have an inefficiency as an organization of identifying and solving these pips. That's the big pip. If you solve that potential improvement, if you solve that problem, if you, instead of we have an inefficiency in coming together and solving these things in the face of day-to-day demand, if that's your biggest asset, Our biggest asset as an organization is we are very good as a team of coming together, identifying potential improvement points, problems and opportunities, and resolving them swiftly in the face of day-to-day demand. By definition, everything else will be much easier. And so concentrating, yes, you need product market fit and you need a good product and cash in the bank and people, blah, blah, blah. But in my long time to learn that that is required but not sufficient. If those resources are not in a recipe or a system that is very good at identifying and addressing the problems and opportunities that come from change, you know, make great decisions and implement them faster than that change is occurring in the face of day-to-day demand, your time as an organization will be limited because what's going to happen is the problems are going to build up and they build up and then they become crises and crises kill companies. And so really starting, it's not sexy and it's a little bit basic. It's not strategic planning and all the exciting strategy stuff. It's get really good as a team of being able to identify those problems and opportunities because by definition, everything else is a problem or an opportunity. So if you're really good at solving them, you'll be able to solve pretty well everything in your path. And each year, because change is accelerating, if you can accelerate the rate at which you're doing that, the rate of change, That's how you become long-term successful. That's how you become the market leader. That's how you sort of defy the odds of having a business that survives decades, managing that change. Don, you mentioned before having the different sort of styles of working, one being high-producing, another being sort of more data-driven. Are these styles better suited to that identification and implementation process? Are some better at the identification of the problem or opportunity? And are some better at the implementation once you've identified what that problem is? Good question. So let's just quickly unpack. So we we believe there are four styles and we use a thing called P-A-E-I, producers, administrators, entrepreneurs, integrators, P-A-E-I. And it really comes from the concept that a business needs to be effective and efficient in the short and the long term in order to be successful. Effective in the short term is producing results. Efficient in the short term is doing it administratively. We're not reinventing the wheel. There's no waste. Long-term efficiency is entrepreneurialism, right? It's seeing the world change. It's being proactive. It's bringing new products. But long-term efficiency 
is where you can integrate, where you create the shared culture, the shared vision, where leadership comes from within. P-A-E-I, produce, administrate, entrepreneur, integrate. Now, the problem is all four of those are in conflict. So let's take a standard meeting, right? Let's say you're coming together to solve a problem and there's four styles in the room, a P, an A, an E, and an I. Well, for a start, P will resent being there. They already know the problem and the solution. They're short-term oriented. They know exactly what the problem and the, the, the solution is. And if everybody just got on board, it would be easy. The A is going, well, not so sure. Hang on a minute. We need to digest and get some data. And the A's are a lot quieter. They generally don't talk as much. When the P gets angry, as an example of frustrated, they will vocalize it. When an administrative-minded person, what do they do? They go quiet. They don't say anything. Then you've got the E, the entrepreneurial type. They'll turn up late to the meeting. That's pissed the A off, right? A's are all about rules and processes and systems. And the meeting starts at nine. I'm there at nine. And in swans this entrepreneurial type that's 10 minutes late. And then they just start saying, you know what? This isn't the right problem anyway. What we really should be talking about is this and this and change that. And that's why we call them the arsonist, right? They, they run around starting fires. So now the E is pissing off the A. The P is pissed off with the A and the E because the P just wants to get back to work. Meanwhile, the E is talking about changing all these things. And the I is looking at everybody going, yeah, why can't we just be friends? Come on. Come on, everybody. Let's play together. Let's work together. The thing is we need all four, right? Good decisions are when you look at a beach ball from different angles. So what we actually need is we need to know that they're in conflict and we need to have process to harness those conflicts. And the way we describe it is, the military analogy is we help them hold the line. If we let the P person, the high producing person that already knows the solution to run up in front of us, when we open fire, guess who we're going to shoot? We're going to shoot them. If we leave the A person who's still analyzing, running spreadsheets, doing data, if we leave them behind, when they open fire, who are they going to shoot? They're going to shoot us. So what we need to do is know that there are different styles, the P is going to help bring the A forward. The A is going to help bring the P back and ensure they don't get in trouble and stand on a landmine. The E is going to help them think outside the box a little bit. And the I is going to help everybody integrate. But we need them to hold the line. And so we have a process. So as an example, we have a decision-making process. First, we define the problem, right? Before we move forward, we must define the problem. Then, in light of that problem definition, what's our task? So as an example, if we'd come together to talk about our marketing material being out of date, and one of the problems we had defined was that the website was out of date, well, what's our task? The P's task is probably just to quickly update some photos. The A probably doesn't want to spend any money and it's probably not a problem anyway and just change a bit of text. The E probably wants a 3D website with holograms and some amazing stuff and the I just wants whatever everybody else is happy, right? Makes everybody happy. And so suddenly just getting the task out, there's a whole lot of conflict because there's to a particular problem, there's never one task. Are we going to do this website in-house or are we going to employ some external website person? Are we going to spend $1,000 or give it a $100,000 budget? Suddenly there's all this, this conflict around that task. So we need, to, we need to have respect in each other. We need to harness each other and we need to hold the line and so that way like I say an environment of high trust and respect because we have trust we have a common interest and respect we know that we're different 
we know our own style, we know the styles of others, we understand what our benefits are, but a, a strength overplayed becomes a weakness. We also know what our weaknesses are, and we have process to bind us together. Now, the need for that process changes depending on how much mutual trust and respect is threatened by what we're discussing. If we're coming together to discuss the weather, well, that's pretty clear. The weather's the weather. If we start talking about who we support in sports, ooh, hang on, might be a little bit more there. You want to start talking about religion and politics, holy moly, you better have some rules and some process of engagement because now you're really straying into that territory. And in organizations, again, depending on what you're coming together, depends on the level of trust and respect required. And that trust and respect is going to be supported by the rules and process. And, and that's why it starts with understanding, you know what, there are different styles, except that they are in conflict, but conflict can either be constructive or destructive. Constructive conflict is when we have trust and respect in each other and respect our differences. And that is then supported by processes that ensure our differences are functional, not dysfunctional. So as an example, the first thing we always do with clients is before we get into any kind of sort of work with them, is we get them to set up their rules for basic decision-making meetings. How are we going to operate as a team? What's acceptable? What's not? What fits this culture? What behaviors? Because if a team of people can't even agree on the rules for the meeting, good luck trying to get something functional out of that meeting. And so if we can at least get some rules that people agree to, then we've moved trust and respect up a little bit. Now, rules are not rules until they're enforced, but we always get them to choose an acknowledgement system because the reality is rules are going to be broken. But by having an acknowledgement system, okay, I've got the rules, I've broken the rules, so when the E turns up 15 minutes late normally, depending on the culture, they either donate $5 to a charity or they quite funny. I've had multiple billionaires on their hands and knees doing push-ups. Nobody escapes the acknowledgement of rules. It doesn't matter what role you are or how much money you got in the bank. If you've broken a rule, you've hurt trust and respect and you need to acknowledge it. And that starts with acknowledging the different styles. And that starts with, uh, you know, that core. If we're going to make really great decisions in an environment where we have different styles, we need some foundational tools to support that. Yeah, the analogy I'm thinking of is when you're building a building, for example, you need these strong foundations. You know, there's only so much you can build. You know, say you're building a skyscraper. The stronger your foundations are, the taller you can build that skyscraper. And I guess it's the same for organizations or businesses. Having that strong foundation is is core and um, critical for being able to, you know, build big businesses and and manage the change so that business grows and develops. This is where the challenge comes and why businesses ultimately fail. You make a very good point. It's it's the lack of foundations that kill businesses. But the problem is you get a business off the ground, you have the money, the time, the expertise, and you put a foundation in and you build a floor. But then you grow and there's more demand for real estate so you add the second and third floor without doing the foundation. And, and, and often happens because doing the foundations is, is the work that founders and, and owners often don't like. It's the boring systems and process and all the stuff that drives them, them mad. In order to build an organization, you need to have the yin and the yang. All right, build one story foundations out of story. Second story, now redo the foundation. Third story, redo the foundation. Because the problem is you can't build the foundations for a skyscraper 
when you first start out. Like it's, it's just never going to work. You have to earn the right to build it. But often when you're in the painting and you're running, you're running hard, you can't see the whole picture. And one day, coronavirus or something comes along and you, you learn really quickly, oh, my foundations weren't as strong as I thought they would were. So it's a constant looping process that, that needs to occur. Like you said, you sort of build, you know, second floor and then come back down, rebuild the foundations and then build the third floor and then come back down and rebuild the foundations as you go along. Yeah, and, and as Dr. Deezus himself sort of shows through some analogy, you know, you're breathing in and out, right? Breathe in, breathe out. There's this sort of yin and yang. You know, why do we sleep? I mean, sleeping is a waste of time. During the day, we fall apart, we disintegrate, we do a whole lot of stuff, we sleep, we reintegrate, we come back together and then we wake up in the morning with more energy and we go and do it. So you've got to be able to, the other description we use is you've got to be able to walk, we've got to be able to cross the street and chew gum at the same time. That's always the challenge. If you could pause life and pause your business, you pause it, redo the foundation, all right, now we've done that, grow, but you can't. The problem is you have to do this in the day-to-day demands. You have to simultaneously build your business and strengthen the foundation. That is a huge challenge. Now, that's one of the reasons why I love the, the stuff that we do because it's, we have some tools and some process to, to solve that particular thing, show business owners and, and investors and, and CEOs how to cross the street and chew gum at the same time, how to grow rapidly but still sink those foundations and one of the foundations that we think is, first, are you able to rapidly accelerate your ability to respond to problems and opportunities? That's, that's like a foundational kind of issue. Then, then other things come down the track. But uh, no, you make, a, you make a really good point. What's the thing you've come to know and believe to be true that you know a whole lot of people listening to this well, would just disagree with? People should be last. So the majority of the world, people first. People first. People, people, people. people should be last in the sequence. Now, there's a nuance here. The reason why they should be last is that people are a product of their environment. Now, people are the most important. If you put people first, the problem is people are a product of their environment. What's their environment? Well, it's the managerial processes. A set of really technical, highly qualified people, great people, and I found this myself, when you list, you can spend unbelievable amounts of money on people, right? But then when we come together, if we don't have the managerial processes to harness our different styles, our different interests, our different roles, great people can descend into madness. Then let's say that there's a few different teams of people. Let's use the analogy of an apple pie, right? Let's say that we do have a reasonable recipe that's processed, but one team thinks we're making apple pies for McDonald's and another team thinks we're making apple pies for the Queen. There's going to be a lot of conflict, even though they might be great people. It's like, well, we're making apple pies for the queen here. We need we need resources and a gold bow and a big fancy box. And the other team's going, when it falls on the ground, five-second rule into the box, off it goes, right? So suddenly, people are now in conflict and there's a problem because we have this disintegration in vision and mission or structure, like we've already discussed. You put somebody in a role with unclear role and responsibility where you don't give them the authority to do their job, or their reward systems don't drive the right behavior, or they don't have the information systems to know whether they're doing a good job, it takes the best person and you're not going to get something out of them. So what we need to do is we need to have the right managerial process for where you are in the life cycle. We need to get really aligned mission and vision that has a structure to support it. So in the apple pie analogy, 
we're all making the same apple pies and the structure is like the oven and the pots and the pans. They're all functional. The oven's not, you know, going to a thousand degrees and burning the apple pie, which often happens. People get burnt on the job. We blame the people. Oh, that person couldn't do it. So get rid of them, start again. And before you know it, you have the same problem. So people should be last, even though they're the most important because they are a product of their environment. Start with the environment, work on those things, and you would be amazed of the extra performance. You want to take ordinary people and have them do extraordinary things rather than constantly having to find extraordinary people, right? Because the risk is without those other ingredients in place. So that's what I uh, would hold as true. Really appreciate that that insight. And, and, and the, I think it's just really important. If you're having people problem in an organization, when we work with clients, we say, don't go to people first, leave people. In fact, we won't take on a, on a job if they have to do any people cuts in the next sort of three months. Start with the managerial process because what you will find is the most painful people, people that are rowing a boat find it difficult to rock the boat at the same time, right? Often there just is an outlet or a process or a mechanism to harness some of that energy. So we get that. Like I say, maybe there's a conflict of the vision and the mission or there's a structural problem. So before going to people, if you're having people performance issues, 99 times out of 100, when we concentrate on those other three ingredients, we find people that were deemed to be poor performers actually really turn out well. And the people that were the top performers, actually, some fish swim a lot better in murky waters. And so when you bring the fine process, some people get caught out because they've just been playing the system. And so before going to people, start with, uh, start with that. And if you are having some people problems, 99 times out of 100, it's not the people, which puts me at odds with a lot of... Yeah, it must, must cause a bit of conflict between people or when you go into businesses where when you, when you mention that because I guess it's almost been... You're almost indoctrinated to believe that it's always um, people first. Yeah, when I go into businesses, it might be like a 30-second pushback, but then they think about it. The only real pushback, if you're in leadership coaching or that kind of stuff, I must admit when I presented coaching and that kind of stuff, half the room will generally uh, throw, throw a knife, but it does remain true. Now, in terms of coaching, do both, right? Often what we're trying to do with coaching of people is we're, we're actually, we don't realize or we're trying to get them to sort of deal with a stimulus better. We'll do both, right? Change the environment so they're not getting the stimulus, that's getting the bad reaction, but then still coach them. Still, still develop their leadership skills, still develop their style, but don't think that if you just develop their leadership, but you leave all that environmental stuff, people default to form. You push someone into a corner, they'll come out swinging. They're not going to go, oh, well, lucky I did a coaching program and now I'm going to pause and I'm going to catch myself because I've learned all this stuff. No, no. If the system pushes them in the, in, pokes them in the, in the chest, they're going to come out swinging. So do both. Fix the process and still coach them. But too often we're told people first, people first, people first. And we put all this effort into people, but it's the environment that's setting off these triggers. You know, I guess people listening can also come down to taking a holiday, for example, putting yourself in a different environment and how you react differently to when you're not in the, in the day-to-day and how that affects you and how that changes you. I guess that's an, I guess another example of um, the effect and how powerful a change of environment or, you know, changes to your environment can be. Yeah, no, but absolutely. And often what happens is that we take people out of their environment to go off and do strategic planning kind of stuff, either every year as a thing of habit or just to solve some problems. 
and we take them out of the environment. And yeah, and yeah, we build some trust and respect in each other and we come up with some great plans and, and we do some team building exercises. But then we go back into the office on Monday and nothing's changed. Phone rings, conflicts, blah, blah, blah. There are lots of team building exercises in every organization and they're called problems. So let's concentrate on solving those and the team building exercise is actually new processes to solve those problems and by doing that, they then change the environment and then the environment will change the people. But it's, it's much harder to try and change the people so they then go and change the environment. I would submit that it's almost next to impossible. So you make a good point. Thanks, Don. Where can people find more about you and uh, Adesis that want to get in contact? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I do a lot of uh, things there, Don uh, Don McKenzie or adesis.com.au is the uh, Australian website. We run regular uh, bits and pieces and, and there's a YouTube channel that has all sorts of different videos and something I'm very passionate about and, and what I like it because it's quite open source. There are books and, and people can self-educate and keen to uh, to share. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on and, and sharing some of these uh, some of these ideas. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing um, some really deep insights on how businesses can manage change, all the different entrepreneurial styles that are in a business. We really, really do appreciate your time. So thanks again. Well, if there were any good insights, it was because there were great questions. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Grind. Please share the podcast. And if you're not already subscribed, be sure to do that right now. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a quick favor and rate and review the podcast. This lets the platform know that I'm doing something right and people like the content. It'd be a huge help and I'd be really, really grateful if you could. Until next time.